Hey everyone, it's Raghu and I'm back again with another edition of Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network and I have James Nestor with me. And uh, I believe a bunch of out there might have, if you don't know James by name, you know the book Breath, which uh, he put out. When, when did this come out? A year ago or so? James? About a year ago in May. Yep. But uh, happy to have you here, James. And uh, as I said before we got on, this book is a, is a re revelation. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I should tell you, though, this is interesting. I got the tip to even look at this or even know about this book from Ramdas's Chinese medicine doctor in Maui, who really kept him going for 15 years. I called him because I had suddenly a little bit of an elevated blood pressure uh, count. And I, uh, I really respect him. Whenever I'm in Maui, I see him. His name is Malik Cotter. And he said, start breathing just do this simple thing in breath and out breath counting you know as long as you can you know from deep diaphragm and do it for five minutes a few times a day i'm telling you and there's a book called breath get it <laughs> that's it so i got the book and i started doing the, the exercise the book was on a shelf because you know i've got a a lot of books that I'm trying to deal with. And it was another book. It was that kind of a thing. And then I sort of, it was very invigorating in the beginning, but then I was falling off the regularity of it and it, it just sort of dissipated. And then I'm passing by and I go, wait, that's Malik's book that he told me to read. So I picked it up and then I went, Okay, hang on a second here. My whole perspective was completely um, unfocused, shall we say? And I then I reached out to uh, to your people representing you and said, "Hey, I would love to do a podcast here. This is something else." So that's how it all came about. Then, as I started going through it, uh, uh, it's it's. Uh, it's something that I really wanted to share with everybody who follows us on Be Here Now Network. So uh, again, thank you. And that's the genesis of how I came. You know, it's, it's uh, thank you, Malik. Well, uh, thanks for having me. And I, I will just say that I had the same exact experience that, that you had, but, but years previously, because I had no experience in breathwork. I had never written about a breathing before and so to find all this stuff out from one step to the other to talk to one person leads you to the other uh, you know that's just what i did for more than five years so that process of discovery it's it's interesting to hear how you just had it uh, the short version but yeah. that's exactly the the journey that i was on while writing this as a journalist yeah and you weren't feeling tip-top right i mean obviously it's in the book but uh but that did push you. Well, yeah, you know, I was following all everything that I thought was was right. I was exercising constantly. I was surfing, doing martial arts, walking a lot, riding my bike, and I was sleeping eight hours a night. But I wasn't breathing correctly, and I didn't know that. And I was having these constant respiratory issues. I was having pneumonia, mild pneumonia, year in and year out. And my doctor would give me a, a pack of antibiotics and say, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, but, but after so many years, I said, something just feels a little off about this. And that's what really got me interested in this subject was that own, my own personal experience of having this thing that we carry around with us all day long, our entire lives. And yet few of us ever consider that we get most of our energy from our breath, that our breath dictates our, our heart rate in so many ways. And that it's, mm. you know, breathing is what feeds our body more than, than the food and drink we ingest. Yeah. And of course, many people who listen to this podcast and the other podcasts on Be Here Now Network around consciousness and are familiar with pranayama and they're familiar with that practice enhancing our ability to assimilate uh, molecules of consciousness, shall we say, and gradually uh, move in a direction of becoming a little bit freer of the stuff that holds us down. 
and and the way that you have integrated as i also said before we got on the the reality that one is of course like what malik said to me start doing this breathing thing and you'll bring your blood pressure uh, just a simple thing completely on that level uh and then years in in the past number of years i i was seeing a teacher in india who very much emphasize pranayama. So it started to come, and that's the other side of it. So to, to grab these two pieces and have them uh, have the realization of how integrated they are, and the way in which, of course, you point them out in the uh, in the book, uh, going back so far, and how uh, the, from the the Tibetans and, and were so the whole idea of tumo which is creating heat in the body to withstand being able to be in cold is, uh, is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, go these, ahead. These were just variations on the same theme that were developed in different cultures at different times, and they were named different things. But when you start breaking them down, which is what I did, I had all of these different pieces of paper on, on my office wall and was looking at what they were asking us to do. So much of pranayama have, has you breathe very vigorously and then hold your breath or to breathe very slowly and then to breathe very vigorously. I mean, what is Kundalini breathing? That's exactly what it is. The same thing happens in Qigong and the same thing happens in other breathing practices uh, throughout the world. And, and so, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that all these cultures develop these different technologies of breathing i think they they did through they did this through through research and finding out what works and what's great now is we have scientific instruments to to measure what happens when you breathe in a certain way measure what happens to your brain to your heart to your blood pressure to your metabolism and that's what's so exciting about all of this to me as a science journalist is it's no longer just subjective. Hey, you breathe this way, you feel better. Okay, great. It's mm. it's objective. We can see this with data. And if we're able to see something with data, we're able to use it across populations, which is exactly what's happening right now. Yeah, amazing. I guess the, we should get to the, the premise, although you touched on it, but uh, just reading from your book, our capacity to breathe has changed through the long processes of human evolution. And the way we breathe has gotten markedly worse since the dawn of the industrial age. And that we'll go into that because that's amazing too. They discovered that 90% of us very likely me, you and almost everyone, you know, is breathing incorrectly and that this failure failure is either causing or aggravating a laundry list of chronic disease. Anybody out there need another reason to read this book? I mean, I can't more highly recommend it. And by the way, one great thing, James, is that at the end of the book, you put an appendix or something uh, with practice. And, you know, and, and I think you have some on your website, which we'll get that all into the show notes as well. But um, the, the, let's, let's go back, though, to, um, I mean, you talk about traditions uh, like uh, Shiva Swarodhaya. Right. From your book. I mean, how did you find that at all? I, this is I mean, I know you're you did a lot of research on this. So but still. Well, I, I kept digging and I thought I had this story pretty well figured out. So in nonfiction, what you do is submit a book proposal, which is about 50 or 60 pages. And that's what you sell to publishers. And they give you a little modicum of money, just enough to stay really hungry, to go out <laughs> and write the book. So I did that. I spent six months on this proposal. And then once I got really deeply into this field of research, I had to throw everything out and start again. Once I realized that humans do not evolve in a straight line of progress no life form evolves in a straight line of progress evolution is not about survival of the fittest or getting stronger and better every year living longer look what's happened to our species in the past 300 years so 
Uh, this is what I was told by biological anthropologists. So I said, what are you talking about? You know, I went to college. I learned about evolution. They're like, yeah, mm, uh, I think you learned uh, just a small part of evolution, not the full story. So if you just taking, for instance, looking at the human mouth, what's happened to our mouths in 300 years, our ancestors had universally straight teeth. They had these huge sinus cavities. They had these huge jaws. They had these gorgeous pronathic faces. 90% of the population today has crooked teeth. Why do we have crooked teeth? Because our mouths have grown so small that our teeth no longer fit. Smaller mouth, more difficulty in breathing. So this is not controversial. And yet so few people have ever heard about it. All you have to do is look at ancient skulls, look at their mouths, look at their teeth, and then look in the mirror and 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 see what you see. Because, uh, you know, our ancestors didn't have their wisdom teeth taken out. They didn't need to. Their mouths were, were big enough. So once I realized that, I said, oh, my God, there is this whole other story here that I need to start digging into. And that's that's what I did for mm-hmm. several years. Yeah. Before we get into the Shiva Swarodaya, mm-hmm. uh, since you, you talked about this change that's gone on through basically Actually, you start with farming when farming changed everything, right? And uh, changed how the way that people ate, and that that was a big deal right there and then in terms of evolution. It's it's crazy to me though how that would make a a very negative change. I don't understand that. Well, well, you know, evolution doesn't have a a set point. It's not mm. always moving towards something. I mean, is it an advantage that chickens don't fly anymore? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Is it an advantage <laughs> that ostriches don't don't fly? Is it an adv- an advantage to humans to have twenty percent of us suffer from asthma and fifty percent of us snore and twenty percent of us suffer from sleep apnea, and you know, sixty percent of the U.S. population be overweight and forty percent be obese? There's there's no advantage to any of that. Fifteen percent of the population has diabetes. I think it's even more than that. So so. That is not going to allow us to exist longer and to be stronger and better. Lifespan, actually a few years ago, was decreasing. Even with all the latest medical advancements, lifespan was starting to decrease. So, um, you know, this sounds controversial right at the beginning, but all you have to do is open up an anthropology book, um, open up a book on evolution, what evolution really is, how it really functions. And it's all clearly placed there. We've been force-fed this survival of the fittest Darwinism, you know, tied into capitalism for for some reason. And uh, that's what we know of evolution, but that's simply not how it works. And the evidence is all over the world, all the time. You can see it for yourself. Mm. We have some evidence going the last year of something or other now, don't we? <laughs> this pandemic, yeah. my God. Well, it's, it's nature's batting last, yeah. right? We, yeah. we think that we've outsmarted everything. Oops, sorry. Mm. It doesn't quite work that way. So this is a real resetting of, of, of the world, I, I hope. You know, it's been a horrendous year and uh, hopefully we'll learn something off the back end of this. And I would say some of the practices that are in this book, the practical practices of breathing correctly or using different methods, again, that are not just for improving uh, health, but they're for improving one's uh, field of consciousness, uh, you can't lose. And uh, I, I think that these practices directly related to what's the biggest thing COVID is you lose the ability to breathe. So I have to think, I mean, you must've thought that this book was finished before COVID, right? <laughs> no, you know, I got, Oh, this was finished so long before COVID oh, yeah. ever, ever entered the scene. I just, I laugh because the book came out in May of last year, 2020, right? COVID really started booting up in March and right when the book came out, you know, some people were just like, oh, very convenient. You you wrote this book real quick and <laughs> and published it um, to, to come out during a respiratory pandemic. This book was signed, sealed, done in September of 2019. That's how long it takes books to come out. So it was in catalog six months beforehand. 
So the fact that it happened to come out, you know, seven weeks into a pandemic that affected the respiratory system at a time when people started considering their breathing is just the most cosmic <laughs> coincidence. And, uh, you know, nobody planned this. This was a book I worked on for years and years and years. Um, but, you know, I think that humans, as a modern humans, we are reactionary. So it's only when things get so bad do we decide to do something about it. You can look at climate change as a great example. There's been signs of this for the last 50 years. Right now, we're starting to barely do something about it. But, you know, when we're losing the ability to breathe, we say, huh, maybe I should think about my breathing a little more often. Maybe I should take care of that. So that's that's certainly what's happened in this last year, at least mm. from what I've seen. There's probably direct practices in here for, for anybody who had COVID or, or I don't even think you need that, but certainly there's some direct correlations that can help. So, yeah, the, the great thing is that so many doctors right now, there's an organization called Stasis, which is formed by a bunch of doctors and other people in the medical community to educate doctors on, on patients who have COVID, um, how to breathe during COVID, because they notice something with, with the vast majority of people who were suffering from extreme symptoms of COVID, their breathing was completely messed up. And it was probably messed up before they even got it. So we know that breathing practices can have a significant impact on to help your recovery with COVID. I'm not saying they're going to do everything for you. I would never say that. But they can only help. You lose your ability to engage your diaphragm when you're on a ventilator, okay? You lose like 50% of your muscle mass after a week. You need to restore that. Antibiotics aren't the only things you need you need to restore the pathway through which you bring in air because we get most of our energy for air. So it seems so simple. And yet this is not something the the larger medical community has been considering is, is how we breathe. They've been considering that we're breathing. As long as you're breathing, you're okay. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's right. how you breathe. Yeah. yeah. So although you, of course, did a lot of scholarly work here, you also went into the field and uh, I, we love stories here. And this is this part of the book is like, boy, you could have a movie just around this part. It's macabre and it's haunted. It's going to Paris. Can you tell that story? Because after, after you went through this whole thing and realized, OK, this change over the last 300 years of people and how their uh, physiognomy, is that the right word, changed? their jaws changed their whole uh, everything changed in that sphere of time to create some really bad bad problems when you talk about what people looked like in the industrial age in terms of their crooked jaws and you know dickens dickinsonian kind of stuff that you would see in one of those dark movies so you went to paris yeah, this was more of the beginning of when I really started getting into this research. And this was before I was able to get into labs to look at ancient human skulls in the top laboratories, uh, one of which is at the Morton Collection at the University of Pennsylvania. So this was before that when I was in Paris and I had heard that there were six million human specimens below the streets of Paris. Some people might know um, what I'm talking about. It's called the catacombs. That's the sanctioned tour for tourists. But there are uh, about 170 other miles of quarries beneath the streets of Paris. That's how they dug up all that limestone. They, they dug up uh, the stone from 60 feet below and then brought it up. And that's what they built the Louvre with. That's what they built the Arc de Triomphe with, you know. And and so with all the dead people, anyone who died in Paris, they would go and put them down in these quarries. So there were no uh, guides down there. It was illegal to be down there, but I happened to find some people to take me down. And there's just millions of skulls. And so millions, millions of skulls. And so you're able to see specifically the one spot where we went to was uh, these were skulls um, from people who died during a cholera 
epidemic in the late 1800s. And so we were able to look at their jaws, to look at their mouths, look at their faces. And this was right at the height of industrialization in Europe where people just started eating processed foods. And within a single generation, mouths shrunk, sinus cavities shrunk, faces started changing. So you could see that very, very easily in the skulls. And, you know, I'm an amateur uh, inspector of skulls, and I certainly was at that <laughs> time, but you can still see it. it. This was a way for me to get my hands on some skulls without going through labs, without getting <laughs> permission, really. But, you know, that section of the book uh, repeatedly was cut from the book. My editor said, what? This doesn't make it. This is a book about breathing. And now you're 60 feet below Paris and you're crawling through these, you know, tunnels for four hours. But I thought it was important to show that the proof of this crazy assessment that the human body has changed is all over the place. It's below us, it's above us, it's all around us, it's in the mirrors, it's on the internet. So I just, it was a way for me to personally experience what I've been hearing from so many of these experts. Mm. Just amazing, really. <laughs> it shines a light on, I mean... <sighs> I read this and then I start to think of people I know and people who've had tremendous problems, uh, either dental or breathing. I mean, so many people breathing. I mean, sleep apnea is crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And never considered any of this. Never. And then, I'm, yeah. Yeah. And what's what's even scarier to me, and I never had either, by the way. So this was a, a process of discovery writing this book was I never heard of any of this stuff. I was told that crooked teeth are hereditary. You get them from your parents. If you look on the NIH website, they say crooked teeth are hereditary. That doesn't make any sense if our great, great, great grandparents had perfectly straight teeth and our teeth were all messed up. So something like sleep apnea is, is you know, 20% of the population is, is struggling with this. Sleep apnea can lead to diabetes. It can lead to Alzheimer's. It can lead to so many, it can lead to increased risk of stroke, to heart disease. I mean, this laundry list of awful things. We have CPAPs now, which work, which work for the symptoms. They do nothing for the core problem. And the core problem for many of us is a mouth that's too small for your face. Obesity and being overweight definitely affects it. But sleep apnea and, and crooked teeth are mostly preventable problems. And people have a hard time dealing with that. People want to blame things on genetics, but these are preventable problems, as are the majority of modern diseases right now affecting Western cultures. Uh, if you start to look at them, you start to realize that our ancestors are certain hunter-gatherer cultures that still exist, the few that still exist on the planet right now, they don't suffer from these problems. So what went wrong and how do we fix it? And that's really what fueled me during this process. Mm, fantastic. So have you seen evidence of using breathing techniques to actually uh, get people out of the CPAP machine for sleep apnea? All the time. Really? Um, you don't hear about it too often. Mm -hmm. and, and here's another thing with it is, not everything is going to work for everybody, right. right? So so the great thing about palliative medicines, about tranquilizers, is they work for everyone in the same way. <laughs> but some people have problems with their noses, right? They're, they have a severely deviated septum. They can't breathe out of their noses, so they breathe through their mouths. Some people have a problem with the back of their throat. Their mouths are too small. <sighs> They choke on themselves. Some people have anxiety issues. Um, and, and so it really depends what the problem is on to how you address it. The great thing is about these breathing techniques is there are only benefits from them. So at the end of a few weeks of doing them, you might say, oh, okay, my sleep apnea isn't entirely gone, but my God, do I feel better? Wow, my blood pressure went down. Uh, I'm a lot calmer. But, but to your point, there is a huge upturning right now in sleep medicine, looking at breathing and looking at how just the way you breathe affects your incidence of the apnea hypopnea index, your AHI, which anyone with 
with the sleep apnea will know about this. And I'm I'm talking with the University of Penn in a couple of uh, weeks. I talked with uh, the Yale and Harvard sleep medicine department. So I talked with Stanford. So this stuff is very hot now because people are looking for real answers. They're not just, they don't want to wear this terrestrial you know, scuba mask every single night. They want to understand the core problem. And a lot of that uh, information that I've found has just been, I won't say covered up, but it's been clouded over by so many other interventions. And um, I think if you look at the core problem and address the core problem, you're going to have a much better, more durable way of dealing with this issue in the future. Mm And by, by the way, everybody, of course, we're going to have all this information in the show notes, links uh, to uh, James, not just the book, his website, where there is uh, you leading some of these breathing practices. So um, now, so I'm taking myself as an example of somebody who got the message and then let it just dissipate for whatever reason not so in you know maybe not paying enough attention to the body paying more attention to the quote unquote spiritual consciousness um, effect and then i get the book and something something just went like this james and it was it was what i needed to hear to actually start to become more serious about putting this stuff into effect. And and here it goes, a last word on slow breathing. And of course, there's many different prescriptions on different practices, which you get the book and you'll see them all. We can't, we'd have to do about five podcasts here to cover all that. And, and you say, it goes by another name, prayer. When Buddhist monks chant their most popular mantra, Om Mane Padme Hum, each spoken phrase lasts six seconds with six, six, six seconds to inhale before the chant starts again. The traditional chant of Om, the sacred sound of the universe used in Jainism and Hinduism and other traditions, takes six seconds to sing with a pause of about six seconds to inhale. And... Uh, that is the prescription and talk about what five and a half seconds is and and that whole thing of the reality of how that gets represented in ancient cultures and spiritual traditions having nothing to do with doing it because you want to, to lower your blood pressure right just talk about that for a minute and yet how many cultures have known that prayer heals right uh, and there's been mm-hmm. studies confirming that, scientifically validating it. So about 20 years ago, some Italian researchers wanted to understand this a little better. And they realized that so many ancient prayers from Native American prayers, Hawaiian prayers, Buddhist prayers, Hindu prayers, Christian prayers, locked into this respiratory rate of about five to six breaths per minute which is about a five to six second inhale, five to six second exhale. It doesn't matter if you're a half a second off, you know, these are generalities here. And they brought in a bunch of subjects and they covered them with sensors and they looked at what happened to their bodies when they recited these prayers, be it Om or the Catholic prayer cycle of the rosary. These are Italians, of course, so I'm sure they they picked that one off uh, to, to begin with. And they noticed that when people recited these prayers, they locked into that respiratory rate and they noticed something else, that their heart rates lowered, their blood pressure lowered, and their bodies entered this state of what they called coherence, where everything is working at peak efficiency. We don't want to breathe too much. We don't want to breathe too little. We want to provide our bodies with the optimum amount of air and energy at all times. And that's what prayer allowed us to do. So we didn't have stopwatches back then. We couldn't uh, put up an app and say, breathe in to five, breathe out to five. But we had prayer. And the Italian researchers wondered, like, was it a coincidence that all of these prayers, all the most popular prayers around the world, various cultures over various millennia, 
all locked into this respiratory rate. Uh, they didn't think so. They think that this was a way of cultures to getting people to get people to breathe in this certain way. Because when you breathe in this certain way, the body is able to naturally heal itself so much more efficiently. And the good news is today, you don't have to pray. If you, if you want to, that's fantastic. But you can just breathe at this rate and you will be able to share in these benefits. And this breathing pattern, this coherent breathing has been thoroughly studied. Um, even brain scans, uh, EG studies, you, you name it. And it's been shown to be so effective in treating things like depression, anxiety, sometimes high blood pressure, even though it doesn't work for everybody. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that is free for everybody. Uh, no one can charge you to do this. And, and there are only benefits associated with it. Mm. And uh, in my case, the uh, wonder of doing a mantra like Om Mani Padme Hung or others that we know alongside of this is, um, shall we say, makes it even more profound because the doing of these mantras take you into a very specific vibrational place if you are free from attachment to outcome and all of that kind of thing. So now you get, you get a twofer, <laughs> you get that. And, and we, we know that when you're, you know, when you're exhaling, you're vocalizing and by vocalizing those vibrations, right? Om or Om Mani Padme Om or, or whatever, that will stimulate the vagus nerve which sends signals throughout the body to relax, to enter that parasympathetic state. Mm. So vocalizing is there are a whole separate load of benefits from doing that. But if you're not able to vocalize, if you're in the public, if you're walking around, you're in a restaurant, you can just breathe at this rate. No one will know you're doing it. And yet you can instantly feel these changes happening in your body. And mm. if you don't trust yourself um, that these changes are happening, get a heart rate variability monitor, get a blood pressure uh, a measurement before and after doing these for a few minutes. And I think you'll you'll see mm. a big difference. Mm. And why not go to the restaurant? Oh, money, but my own, oh, money, but my, it'll benefit everybody. Fine with <laughs> me. I would love to, I'd love to go to that restaurant. So sign, <laughs> yeah. sign me up. Yeah, really. So, uh, there's a, another great, there's a lot of great stories in here, which keeps it uh, entertaining and, and not in the least bit dry. Uh, but uh, in the 30s, you, um, so there's a man named Kelder, right? It's mm -hmm. Peter Kelder, right? And on how you found him, I have no idea. Um, but <laughs> I loved the story and I wanted to say something about what you said, actually. Uh, do you want to tell the story of, of Kelder with Colonel Bradford? Sure. So this was somebody who was sitting on a park bench in L.A. And this colonel came up and he was very old. And this was what, in the 30s, I believe. Um, he's very old. And this colonel was, was a British colonel. And he had just come back from India and said, hey, you know, I'm very old, uh, my body's falling apart, but I've heard of this place that there's these monasteries and they can teach you these methods of regaining your youth. It's like this Shangri-La place. And so Kelder was just like, whatever, dude. Um, so the, the guy hobbled <laughs> off and came back four years later and and he was looked completely reborn. Like his ha hair color had changed. He wasn't limping anymore. He looked 20 years younger. And so Kelder then wrote a book called the, the eye of the revelation is, is the, the original title. And he renamed it after that. It sold something like 2 million copies. So what? Uh, pretty, pretty popular book, wow. but it was a bunch of, and it's like, you know, 40 pages long too. So I'm glad that worked out for him, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it, it's just a series of yoga poses called the five Tibetan rites. And uh, if you practice these, uh, some people believe that they can help restore the body. So all, all it was is a series of stretches and, and breathing techniques to engage your diaphragmatic movement, to loosen up your rib cage so you can take in easier breaths. And, you know, that's one of many stories in that, that book that 
the new title is escaping me right now, but um, it's all you'll we're have gonna it find in, that. We gotta notes. find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get that. I wonder if it's possible to even get a copy of it under the new title. That'll be interesting. Uh, yes, you can. You, you can. can. Okay, yeah. let's do it. That'll be fun. But what you say in it and uh, is Kelder's yarn was likely fabricated or grossly exaggerated. Well, I have to tell you, there is a practice that I'm sure you probably know, but I unfortunately cannot. I tried to remember the name and looked it up. I couldn't find it anywhere. But it's a practice that yogis use. They go in with herbs into a solitary place for at least a year. And they actually get new teeth, new this, new that, and come out pretty much a new person. Uh, and I have to tell you, I actually met somebody who did that. And uh, I, and we know that we only know about the legitimacy of this character, this Baba in India, because we, he had hung out with Neem Karoli Baba, you know, Ram Das, our guru, man in the blanket, in, in uh, his uh, very earlier part of last century. And they had gone around and done uh, austerities together, meditating in caves and all that stuff. And he knew stories that he told us, this Baba. I used to travel with, and, and he had another, Maharaji, we called him, had another name before that. And it was verified because Maharaji told the same exact story to our mentor, Casey Tuari, who told it to us. And, and when he heard this, he was flabbergasted. and. This, he, uh, he went through a transformation and uh, we'll, we'll try and find out the name of, of that. I will get to it. I know my, my friend Krishnas knows the name of that. Uh, but yeah, so maybe it wasn't a grossly exaggerated thing, you know, who knows, right? Well, there's, you know, there's no way of knowing now. Um, Colonel Bradford was a pseudonym for this person. He didn't list his real name and oh, Kelly really? had been passed away for, for years and years. And this was back in the thirties. But what is inspiring is all these other tales, which we had been warned were apocryphal, that they couldn't be true, that a human body couldn't do that we found out that they are true and that humans can do this. Tumo is a great example. The concept mm. that you can sit in the snow for eight hours at a time and melt a circle around yourself. This is what Buddhist monks had to do in the coldest nights of winters as part of their training. And they had been doing this for thousands of years. But when Westerners went out there and came back in the 60s said there's these monks and they can heat their bodies up and they don't wear anything they sit in the snow like no scientists believe this nobody would believe this until a scientist went out there a scientist from harvard named benson, herbert benson right? yes and and found out that these monks were not able only to do that they were able to decrease their metabolic rates by 60 percent well below someone in a coma and heat themselves up simultaneously. What is the scientific explanation for that that we have? Zero. We still don't know how they're able to do it. And yet we know that they can do this and breathing is an essential part of this process. So that's where I think things get very interesting, where you can measure the effects of these things, but still you hit this wall in our limited understanding of how the body really works, of how the universe really works, of how nature really works. And that's where science and, and measurements to me really get fascinating. That's the area I try to plumb into as much as I can. Yeah. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, of course, has been working with the likes of Richie Davidson and, and others, our friend Danny Goldman, and uh, exactly to show the the substantiality of what they have learned over these years where there was nothing else of interest except going inside and knowing what the you know, what, what's this all about? And, uh, and the fact is that, uh, these things are being proven out. I mean, I love the thing. There's a one Lama named, uh, Mingdur Rinpoche. I'm not sure if you know who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know who he is. Um, and he was the first that, uh, 
they experimented on uh, you using all of the the scientific measurement stuff and and they this is so great i mean he had been practicing meditation for a long time but he was but relatively young when i mean he's not much more than i don't know 45 6 7 at this point and it, this is at least 10 to 15 years ago when they did those first tests and they said okay get into a compassionate moment and they figured okay well he's got to go in and just relax use breath whatever he might be instantly they looked at it and they went oh my god he just instantly did that so the capability that is being proven that we have and through these amazing beings these tibetan monks in particular is extraordinary and uh, yeah, and you, you, of course, point this out as you just did. Uh, and then, but the interesting, so you you bring in um, the whole Tumo thing, inner fire breathing, and you talk about Naropa, right? The a sage who was elemental to what Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism is today. And going through and Herbert Benson doing all of that uh, work he did to uh, verify this stuff, all the way to Wim Hof. And I'm supposing, and you went into that, talk about Wim Hof and the way that he is using um, some of the stuff that we're talking about and uh, how it relates to sort of a more modern take on it, right? Well, Wim is just another person in the long lineage of people who have been able to use their breath to do, quote-unquote, impossible things. And if Wim were around 200 years ago and we were reading stories about his feats, nobody would believe it. I mean, this is just what's happened time and time again. The great thing about Wim is he is living right now in the modern age and we have videotape and we have audio and we have scientific measurements. And so the fact that he's broken 26 world records, the fact that he sat in an ice bath for two hours and not suffered from frostbite or hypothermia, or that he can instantaneously turn on his brain to release opioids and other hormones into his body. This is all documented. And what's even better about this is that They've found in various studies that Wim can take a group of people, train them in his method, and then after about a week of training, they'll be able to take conscious control of their autonomic nervous system functions and their immune function. And this was proven when they shot these people up with E. coli, <laughs> with the endotoxin version of E. coli, and they did not suffer any of the side effects that always come with E. coli. So this thing is just starting to really open up right now. And it's very exciting to see these breathing methods, this temporary exposure to cold, different conscious meditation methods being used for quote unquote incurable diseases. These people who were told that they were afflicted with something that will never be cured are walking out a couple months later cured. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the scientific establishment is still trying to figure out how exactly that works, but you can't deny that these people are curing themselves. So again, there's that gray zone. We see the effects of these processes and techniques. We know they're working because we can measure that in their inflammatory markers and so many other, other markers. But we have a hard time understanding exactly what's happening to the body at that time. But we do know that breathing is an essential component of this healing process. Mm, yeah. And that not, and you do mention, of course, you're talking about anxiety and panic and we're talking about what's gone on in the last year. Um, to use this methodology in that, in that way is, I think uh, one of the most important acts that anybody can do these days is really use your breath to uh, to really treat what has been, that's endemic. I mean, we can talk about people 20% with sleep apnea, 20% with this, that, or the other, but 
let's get into, I think, a very high percentage over this last year um, in, in terms of the kind of anxiety that has been produced, not just with the pandemic. I was talking to Dr. Belisa Vranich. She's written a few books on breathing, on the practices of breathing, more focused on structural aspects of how to breathe in a healthy way, how to stretch your body, how to position your body. So she deals with a lot of people with anxiety, depression, other mental health issues. And she said that you cannot ever truly help people overcome anxiety, panic, and more without first having them understand and take control of their breathing. Hmm. You can blunt the symptoms of that, which we have drugs to do that, which aren't very effective if you look at the scientific literature. But, you know, we can numb ourselves, but you're not dealing with a core issue. And for so many of these people, the core issue is tied to the way in which they're stressing themselves out day in and day out with their breathing. And we can see a part of that by looking at the carbon dioxide levels. So when we breathe too much, we blow off too much CO2. And populations of people with asthma, with panic, depression, even anorexia, traditionally have very low CO2 levels because they're breathing way too much and they're breathing through their mouth. And when you're constantly breathing this way, you're sending a signal to your body that it is constantly stressed. Even if you're not, even if your brain is calm, it's getting signals from the body saying that you are stressed. And people do this all day, every day. And after a while, it will just wear your body down, which is exactly what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Not to mention here, up to 80% of office workers, according to one estimate, suffer from something called continuous partial, this caught my attention, partial attention. We'll scan our email, write something down, check Twitter, do it all over again, never really focusing on any specific task, multitasking. In this state of perpetual distraction, breathing becomes shallow and erratic. Sometimes we won't breathe at all for half a minute or longer. The problem is serious enough that the National Institutes of Health has enlisted several researchers to study its effects over the past decades. And, and one of these, uh, Dr. Margaret Chesney said, uh, told you that the habit, also known as email apnea, holy Jesus, can contribute to the same maladies as sleep apnea. That's, a, I can relate with that. It's scary. <laughs> In my my regular day to day world of doing this stuff and podcasts and podcast network and then foundation that uh, related to Ramdas and everything that we do, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, and I'm proud of the fact that I can multitask and keep it all into little pockets, like a like I've got a little helmet on that you know, like a VR thing. And then I read something like this and I go, are you out of your fucking mind? Jesus, God, <laughs> you know, a little bit uh, scary. And, but then we go back to the Bhagavad Gita and uh, you talk about the translate, translating the breathing practice of pranayama. So, that is the thing that we who have spent a lot of time in the East, it's the first thing we came across related to anything around breath. And as I said, in the, in the last number of years, that's been a, uh, something that, again, it wasn't top of my list. And so I was a little bit uh, going in and out of it and, and so on. But yeah, tell about your own uh, us about your findings around pranayama and the yoga tradition. And I know you went to South America. Can't remember which country to to see this this uh, person who was uh, a, a devoted hatha yogi. What was his name? Mm -hmm. um, DeRose. Yeah. So DeRose, with yeah. with email apnea, you know, this was something we could just go back to that for a yeah. second. So this was something that. I thought that that percentage was way overinflated. I said, there's no way 80% of us suffer from this until I started wearing some sensors, a pulse oximeter and other instruments. 
and was looking at my breathing throughout the day. And it was so dysfunctional. Uh, when you sit down, you're like, oh my God, I've got 40 emails. I got to get back to all these people within the next hour. Someone's calling me. Your breathing just goes to hell. And this is when you need your breathing the most. Because again, we get most of our energy from our breathing. And if you're not breathing efficiently, your body has to struggle. And when you are stressed, you really want to be able to operate at peak efficiency. So my breathing was way worse than I ever imagined. And I've heard this from so many people and the science is very clear on this as well. Margaret Chesney is up at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, very close to my house here. And she had been studying this for about 20 years. You know, some people hold their breath too much. Some people breathe too much. And uh, it's a very real thing. And then you take compound into that, the stress of sitting in front of a computer all day with how we're sitting all day. And even if we want to take a deep fluid breath, so many of us are so hunched over that we can't. We're inhibiting mm. more than 30% of our ability just to take a breath of air. So all of this, along with the anatomical changes that have occurred to our mouths and faces, is really created a perfect storm of chronically terrible breathing across the board. Even if you're an athlete, you're like, oh, I'm a perfect BMI and I'm super fit. These people can suffer from terrible breathing problems, which will wear themselves down. You know, um, if you look at weightlifters, even you, you think this guy's the pinnacle of health. He's all oiled up, lifting weights, super strong. Those guys die all the time in their 40s or 50s from heart failure because they can't breathe because they built up their necks so much that they can't breathe and they suffer so often from sleep apnea. So, you know, these are big percentages to throw out. These are big claims to throw out. And I did not throw them out lightly. I did the research and uh, this is what the leaders in the field have, have told me. And all you have to do is look at the percentages of breathing pathologies and problems out there and you can see it for yourself. So mm. luckily, you know, the ancients were onto this stuff for, for thousands of years, they knew of the importance of breathing, whether in Hinduism or Buddhism or, or Catholicism, I mean, whatever have you. And so that was fun to go and dig up some of that stuff and talk to people. DeRose was one person who's done an incredible amount of research in this work. Uh, you know, I went to India. Uh, this was years and years ago. I didn't find much. I'll, I'll be honest. A lot of Indians don't know what pranayama is. <laughs> they don't know what Ayurvedic medicine is. They don't really care about what yoga is. And so it seems a bit ironic, but I went to, to Brazil um, to somebody who's spent 30, 40 years digging through ancient texts to try to unearth the original yoga. And, and that's what he believes he has put together. Hmm. Does he have any a book or anything, DeRose? There's tons of books. They're all in oh, Portuguese. Really? Some of them are getting translated into English now. Fascinating guy because he did not set out to look up this research for any specific reason. He just kept finding holes in the versions of yoga and pranayama that we've been taught in yoga classes. He said, all this stuff is new. Vinyasa flow, which I'm sure a lot of people do. I certainly do. That's a hundred years old. <laughs> and we accept that as this ancient practice of yoga. It's not. So DeRose wanted to find the original yoga and the original yoga that started something like 5,000 years ago was a technology of breathing. That's it. There were no moves. There was no standing up, no downward dogs. You sat and you breathed and you used your mind. And so that's what yoga was first intended to do is to put you up the ladder of self-realization. But didn't he at some point was there were postures, but they would get into the posture for a very long time using breath. Is that not? That's right. So the very first yoga, there were not postures. And then slowly the yogis started developing mudras. They started developing asanas. They started developing different ways of holding their body. So the postures were originally meant to be held for an excruciatingly long time. Because when you're holding your posture like this, with your arm over your head, 
and you're breathing slowly, you are expanding your lung capacity, right? And so you're allowing yourself to breathe more easily. And that's what the DeRose method, he calls it. Um, that's what it does. And again, as, as I mentioned, only 120 or so years ago, did we start moving postures from one to the other in this kind of dance? That's not the original yoga. So it's just interesting that yeah. that original traditional yoga had been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and practiced in pretty much the same way throughout much of that time. But only in the past hundred years or so have has it changed so much. And the version taught down the street at me at the Zillion of Yoga Studios, um, you know, <laughs> is this is this flowy yoga? Nothing wrong with it. It's great. I love it. I do it all the time. But I was more curious to see, you know, what are the origins of this practice and how does breathing tie into it? And DeRose was able to really educate me in that regard. Mm, that's good. Well, we'll we've got to try and find something that's translated. We'll we'll uh, we'll have everybody take a look. Uh, back to the uh, Shiva Swarodaya. Uh, this was developed thirteen hundred years ago. Is what you have here, and it's uh, it's it's kind of a very poetic thing, right? I mean. Um, this one nostril will open to let breath in as the other will softly close throughout the, the day. Some days the right nostril yawns awake to greet the sun. <laughs> That's so great. Almost. Other days the left awakens to the fullness of the moon. I love this stuff. Um, these rhythms are the same throughout every month and they're shared by all humanity. It's a method our bodies use to stay balanced and grounded to the rhythms of the cosmos and each other. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't know what you're, uh, this to me was, although not a lot said about it in the book, it was very meaningful, uh, most especially around the, the idea of becoming balanced and grounded to the rhythms of the cosmos and each other. Well, what's so great about this particular example, uh, at least what I thought was so interesting about it is it has been scientifically validated so yogis were talking about this you know more than a thousand years ago they said wait a second it seems like our nostrils are all opening on one side at the same time and then they're closing and then the other side is opening and of course modern westerners say oh this is impossible what is this stuff doesn't make any sense but it wasn't until 1895 that a german researcher found that the human nose, both sides of the nostrils, operate in these different systems, okay? So they will inflame, one side will inflame and block off one nostril as the other opens. And then as that other opens, after about 30 minutes to three to four hours, that will close and it will shift. And so for decades, researchers thought, why would the nose do this? This is such a waste of time until we started measuring it. And we found that inhaling and exhaling breath through different nostrils affects the body in different ways. The left side is associated with a calming effect, right? It lowers heart rate, it lowers blood pressure, cools us down. Right side is associated with a heating effect, it raises our heart rates and our blood pressure and affects our brains too. So it, to me, this is what makes this stuff so fascinating. It's not just the ancient text that the ancient text was writing about this, but then you can look at it now and apply it to our day and age and to find that it, that it actually works. And there was at least one study where they studied a whole group of people and had them uh, measure what nostril was open at what time and at the full moon and new moon they were all aligned wow. at the same time oh, so, so cool oh, and that's exactly what the ancient text had had said but these kind of studies you know i'm surprised someone was even able to do that there's no money to, to do studies like this um and so there's no incentive for a lot of researchers they can't get funding um but that's not to me, that's no reason not to do this research. Uh, I think it's fascinating and it's a way to better understand our bodies and our connection with our breath and everything around us. Yeah. And consciousness. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everybody out there, if you haven't heard enough that would make you go, wait, I should maybe 
just get a little bit of a shift of perspective, which is what happened to me through this book. And I thank you for that, James. And of course, we're going to provide everything we possibly can to uh, allow to allow you all to investigate a little bit more. And uh, this has been highly eye-opening from the moment that I started reading this in preparation to have a chat with you. Um, and it's it's resounding through my day. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking, am I, is there any mouth breathing that I'm doing? Okay, now I've got an opportunity. I'm going off for a walk and I can practice some of what we're talking about, not to mention, uh, you know, incorporating into regular daily practice. So again, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, hope to... Uh, speak to you again one of these days so everybody uh this is mind rolling on be here now network go to be here now network.com and catch all of the wonderful people that we have as part of this network from meditation teachers to thought leaders to poets and experts on rumi omid safi if you like rumi we have this wonderful a podcast from a man named Omid Safi, who's just an expert on Sufi poets. It's, it's it's really wonderful. So we shall see you next time on Mind Rolling again. Thank you so much, James. Thanks a lot for having me.